you guys pray with me? Father God, um, we come to you this morning, um, and that's our praise, that your love for us is deep. God, I pray that um, that's not something that is just a reminder during the course of a song, but that it's something that we um, cherish in our hearts, something that we recognize. God, this morning I pray um, that you use me, that you speak through me here, um, that it's not my words that are delivered or received, but that it's your message, that it's your words. God, I pray for those people that are here this morning to receive your message. God, I pray that they um, will hear it, that it'll be something that um, is received with uh, open arms, that it's something that they can then take out into the world and deliver to um, other people to make your truth known to them. God, we love the fact that you use us for that, um, that we are simply tools in your hands. So God, I pray that that's um, the goal of our congregation, that we go out in order to be used by you. We love you, we praise you, and all God's people said, amen. You guys can have a seat. All right, so April 19th, 1981 uh, was Easter Sunday. Most people were at church. Um, rejoicing in the truth of our risen Lord. My mom was at the hospital giving birth to me. Um, I was born, the celebration for my youth, that I was in fact birthed by my mother. Thank you for that. Um, I, uh, I was born into a, a pretty good family, especially by 80s standards. We seemed to have a lot. We had a pool. Um, my mom drove a Cadillac. My dad had a perm. We were, we were well by 80s standards. Um, and you would have thought that things would have been really happy for us. But sadly, as is the case with most families, um, my parents didn't stay together. They split up. And I remember that striking me as a little bit odd when I was a kid because they seemed to have it all, right? Like I remember sitting back and thinking they have all of the things, all of the stuff that should make them happy. But I can remember my mom sitting down with my brother and I. We played a game of Uno together. And she broke the news to us that her and my dad weren't going to be staying together. And um, it was the moment that I remember kind of learning for the first time about this elusive state of happiness. Um, as we approach the 4th of July and we, and we celebrate our independence, there's a, uh, some famous words that ring out in my mind during this course of the year. And it's this. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. The uh, writers of the Declaration of Independence could have very easily just written life, liberty, and happiness, but they didn't do that, right? Happiness didn't get the same consideration that life and liberty do, and I think part of the reason for that is because to an extent, you can kind of guarantee life and liberty, but happiness... Not so much. Happiness, if you boil it down, is the American dream. It's what we all kind of strive for. And, and many people realize that as you search for and look for this happiness in things of this world, a lot of times it becomes a pretty elusive things. Some of you may not realize this about me, but I struggle with being happy sometimes. It's kind of hard to believe. I try to be a joyous person. I walk around with a big smile on my face a whole bunch. I want people to laugh. But there are times in my life where I go through these periods where I kind of stop and I look around and I kind of think to myself, I'm not that happy right now. I don't know why things 
you know, seem to be pretty good for me, but I just can't seem to find a joy or happiness inside my heart. And I have, as I think you probably should, confided in my Christian brothers during that particular season of my life. I've gone to them and said, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I don't know why, but I can't seem to find joy and happiness. And they respond pretty similar almost every time I go to them. And it's uh, this line that Jesus calls us to be holy. He doesn't call us to be happy. And uh, I believed that. I believed that for a good period of my life. In fact, if you go to Mardell, there's probably a t-shirt with something similar to that written on it. But it's that line of thinking that is the reason for this mass exodus of students as they graduate from high school and head off to college. It's because they think that if they are uh, only given two options to either be happy or to be holy, then they're going to choose to be happy. Like, that's the option that they want. But I don't know that that statement is necessarily true. I think that it's, it's kind of a lie. Not the holy part. I do think that God calls us to be holy. I think that he wants us to be set apart from the world. I think the heart of sanctification, God working in our life, is for us to be refined into holiness. But I think if you look at scripture, you don't see holy and happy as two completely different things. In fact, you kind of see the opposite of that. In Psalm 37, 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 32, 11 says, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Philippians 3, 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, Rejoice always. Romans 12, 8, The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Psalm 102 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Rejoice in the Lord, Scripture tells us. Delight yourself in him. Shout for joy and on and on and on. God does not desire obedience more than he desires our happiness. He desires for us to rejoice in our obedience. The more I look to Scripture, the more I see the things that I'm constantly looking for in my life in order to bring me that joy and that fulfillment. My life changed when I realized that the uh, nice-paying job, the um, validation at work, the big-screen TV, all of the likes on social media that I could get, the bigger TV, all of that stuff was really just a way for me to fake what God was already wanting to provide for me. But what is God's joy? How do we get God's joy? What does God's joy look like in our lives? How is that obtained? Well, I think the book of John gives us a pretty good picture of that. So we're going to be in the book of John this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, if you want to turn to John 17, go ahead and flip there. It's also going to be on the screen for us to read together. It says this, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world." Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So let me set a little bit of context here to that particular verse. Uh, this comes in chapter 17 of John. John is the most extensive retelling of what has taken place in the upper room. Um, these are the moments, the hours leading up to Christ's crucifixion. 
Okay? He's breaking bread with his disciples. He's washing their feet. He's speaking to them at length about um, some of the stuff that's about to happen to them. Okay? He knows he's about to be crucified, and so he's kind of trying to prepare them spiritually and emotionally for what's about to take place. And he breaks it off into this prayer, this high priestly prayer, or what some people call Jesus' farewell prayer. I recommend the entire chapter of John 17. If you get home later on today and you're preparing for a quiet time and you're something, wanting something to read, then this particular chapter is something that I think that you should, uh, should read. Now, this small section that we're looking at is just a portion of Jesus speaking to God the Father about us. Now, specifically, he's talking about the 12 disciples right here. In verse 6, we see him say, the people whom you gave me. He's talking about the 12 But he goes on in verse 20 to clarify that I do not ask for these things only, but that I also ask for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's talking as if he's talking about the disciples, but he's also clarifying for us that, hey, I'm talking about all of you guys that are going to be reading this. Now, a little side note. Um, I think that it's pretty mind-blowing that Jesus is moments away from being beaten and crucified. And he knows it. This is knowledge that he has. And yet, in the moments leading up to his crucifixion, he's praying for us. He's praying for you, and he's praying for me. Like, if there was ever a moment for Jesus to maybe take a second and just kind of realize what's about to take place. But knowing the extent of this sacrifice, he's on his knees before God, calling out for us, for us to be guarded and for us to be led. I think it's mind-blowing. It's just beautiful. So again, Jesus is speaking to the Father on our behalf, and he makes a point to address our happiness or our joy. He says that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. But what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus' joy to be fulfilled in us? One of the things that I think is important for us to recognize is that it's not always going to be easy. I think sometimes we relate happiness and joy with things being a cakewalk or being easy for us. And I think Jesus tells us repeatedly in Scripture that that's not going to be the case. And the disciples knew this because before this prayer, Jesus was sitting down with the disciples and he was talking with them. And one of the things that he was addressing with them was their sorrow turning to joy. Here's what he says. And this is in chapter 16, verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. It doesn't sound very good. But he goes on and he says... You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remains in anguish for joy that a human being has been born of the world. Jesus is saying that if you focus on the here and the now and the pain and the sorrow and the stuff that you're going through right now, you're going to completely miss the goodness that's going to come. Now, you're all going to be comforted by the fact that I have never known the pains of childbirth, okay? I never will. I've heard rumors. In fact, I spent a long afternoon reading a very colorful blog post by a friend of ours about labor. She had given birth at home naturally, and she decided to write about it and share it with the world. And me, not knowing what I was getting in for, decided to read the entire thing. It was quite eye-opening for me. Apparently, and I I, I say this uh, again because it's secondhand knowledge, but apparently there's different emotions that happen during the labor process, okay? There's different things that a woman feels, 
Okay, step one, the first mental state that she goes through is excitement, all right? She wakes up from, from sleeping in the middle of the night and the contractions are happening and, and, and the excitement and the anticipation of this, this period of time that she's been waiting for is finally coming to fruition. So she hops out of bed, she wakes her husband up, he's running around like a madman trying to pack stuff and they're excited, they're happy and they get in the car and they start driving way too fast and probably very dangerously to the hospital and it's at that moment that typically the woman hits her second stage, which is seriousness. This is happening. We are about to have a baby. You were driving way too fast. You need to slow down, okay? And then quickly, as, as those pains start to increase for her, she moves from a state of seriousness into a state of self-doubt, okay? I don't think this is what I'm supposed to be doing, okay? This, this, I don't have what it takes. This was a mistake. I should not be going through this. I don't know if I can do this. This is usually the same part that she begins to tell her husband how much she doesn't appreciate him for putting her in the state that she currently finds herself. Now, I joke about it, but the pain is so severe for a woman in those moments that she gets to a point to where mentally she convinces herself that she cannot push on any further that she's made a mistake, that the road that she has gone down is not the path she should have taken. But then something crazy happens. All the pain starts to stop, and that baby is pressed against her chest. And all of that sorrow and all of that agony and all of that pain is quickly replaced with this unbridled joy. Jesus is saying to us, look, the world is going to be hard on you. There are going to be things that are going to happen. There's going to be seasons that you're going to go through where things are going to be tough. But there will come a day when we find ourselves face to face with our creator and all of that sorrow is going to turn to unbridled joy. You're going to want to give up, though, along the way. There's going to be times where you're going to want to stop, but the juice is worth the squeeze. It's that hope that should keep us going, really. It's that hope and that understanding that amazing things are happening to us and through us. It's that hope that makes it so that we realize that our struggle isn't meaningless. The things that we're going, for, going through have a purpose for us. I've seen people within the church that have had a relationship with Christ and have known God in, in a very intimate way go through some of the most horrific things in their life and some of the biggest struggles and they do it with joy and rejoicing in their heart because they see that there's the glorification of God taking place through that process. Paul, talking to uh, the church at Corinth, um, in his second letter, chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, I think he puts it so eloquently when he says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If you want happiness, if you want Christ's joy fulfilled in you, then you have to realize that it's not going to be easy, but it is going to be worth it. The second thing is this, you have to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus addresses this here in his prayer um, in verse 15. He could have easily said, God, you are removing me from this world and this situation, but you have decided um, to leave them. 
please keep them here. You could take them away the same way that you're taking me away. You could remove them from some of the anguish and the pain and the segregation that they're going to go through, but he doesn't. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So another little side note here. Friday, I was sitting at home, and the internet exploded. Okay, the Supreme Court ruling came down, and my Facebook feed lit up like a Christmas tree with dialogue from believers and non-believers as the weight of this decision started to bear down on us. And I remember sitting there watching all of this and thinking, man, I wonder how the preacher's going to address this on Sunday. And then I realized I'm the one that's preaching on Sunday. Um, I'm not going to say much, but I want to say this. I saw a lot of hatred and anger and unhappiness from people that are children of God publicly for the entire world to see. Um, I saw them frustrated not only by the ruling that was taking place, but also by the response of other believers or people that they thought were believers. And if I read this verse for what it means, then if I'm supposed to be in the world but not of the world, then things, worldly matters such as this should not push me to a point of this level of anger and hatred towards somebody else. I'm unhappy because of worldly things. What Jesus tells us repeatedly is that we are supposed to love people. We love people and we show them Jesus. That's what we do. Okay? We don't just love people. Some people say just love people. You have to show them Jesus. And they're going to be angry because of that. Scripture tells us repeatedly that they are not going to be happy with the truth of what we deliver to them, but that doesn't stop us from loving them and showing them Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do, okay? That's all I got. That's the, that's, I had to mention it, okay? Two things about this verse that I just talked about. One, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. This is Christ's acknowledgement of the critical work that the disciples are supposed to continue. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, these men, and again, by extension, us, are supposed to go and make, right? That's what Scripture tells us. We're supposed to declare the gospel and make him known to the deepest, darkest, dirtiest places. It doesn't mean that we sit here in this church and we close the doors and we shut the lights off and we wait for him to send us on to glory. It means that we go and make him known. Jesus is saying here, keep them here in the world and send them out. If you look a little further down in verse 18, he actually specifically says, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to be Christ in the world. Not in a compound or on a commune. Not only for this hour that you're in this church on Sunday mornings, but at all times to all people in all places. Love people. Show them Jesus. Christ's joy in us is for us to be on mission. The second part of this says that they are not of the world. Now, here's where I think we get into the most trouble, especially as it pertains to happiness. We seek emotional fulfillment in the world instead of from God. We tend to put more value on the emotional payout that comes from buying a new vehicle than the mission of Christ. That's what we do. And why do we do that? We do it because it's immediate. Right? I can go to a car dealership right now, I can buy a car, I can drive it home, I can sit in it and smell the sweet scent of success. And when that fades away and that unhappiness goes away, then I can go and I can buy something else. 
we're worse off if I can just get acknowledgement and for people to like me, if I can buy the stuff that people will then think that I'm a good person for, or they'll acknowledge that I've made it big or I've become successful. If they'll pat me on the back and tell me how good that I am, if I can get that acknowledgement, then I'll be happy. I struggle with this with our students all the time, all right? They're on Instachat and Facegram, and they're attempting to get the acceptance from other students that they really should be getting from God. And it requires them to compromise who they are, who God has created them to be in order to get more likes and more shares. You may not be doing it on social media. You may not be on social media trying to seek approval, but I bet if you're honest with yourself, there's something in your life that you're doing today to try to get that sort of affirmation. So you're seeking love and you're seeking approval from your spouse, from your boss, from your friends. You're trying to fill the void in your life with new golf clubs and a Ford Focus just so you can get that six months happiness high. And when it starts to go away, you look at other ways to try to make yourself happy again. I do this, okay? I'm not casting stones here. I can preach about these things and it's easy for me to come up with this dialogue because it's stuff that I do in my life as well. But my world was rocked whenever I realized that all of those things were really just ways that I was trying to falsify what Christ was already doing for me. I was looking for love and affirmation in people that was temporary when I should have been looking for the love and affirmation from God, which is eternal. I was looking for peace in a job and financial security when I should be seeking the peace that comes from God's provision. Now, this isn't a poverty gospel message, okay? I'm not telling you guys to go out and sell all of your stuff and to quit your job. This isn't a, a poverty gospel or a prosperity gospel. It's a Jesus gospel. And it's not circumstantial. It shouldn't be controlled by what you do or do not have. A circumstantial form of the gospel says that you have to be rich and have prosperity or you have to be poor and be in poverty in order for you to be able to love and give affection and to make people know who Jesus is. But if you're living a Christ-centered gospel, then if God called you to live a life of prosperity or poverty, you wouldn't not only be okay with it, you would find joy in that lifestyle and being able to make him known. Be in the world is what this says. Spread the gospel, but do not be consumed by it. In order for us to avoid, though, that consumption, that worldly consumption, we have to be sanctified in truth. And his word, as this verse reminds us, is truth. So sanctification, okay? I'm not going to lie to you guys. I'm going to be a little honest, a little transparent with y'all. I spent a good majority of my Christian walk having no clue what in the world sanctification meant, Okay? I would hear pastors get up and use words like justification and sanctification, and I would nod my head, and I would think, man, that guy must have gone to like seminary because he's using really big words, and I don't even really know what they mean. Now, I'm probably losing confidence in you as a congregation because I'm admitting that, but I'm going to explain sanctification to you guys because I have a feeling there might be some people that are in the same situation that I'm in, okay, or was in. Sanctification um, is basically the process of becoming holy. Okay, it's God's work in our life where he begins to sanctify us. He begins to set us apart from the world. It's the redemptive work that takes place and begins to free us from sin. Justification is that moment where you enter into a relationship with God. And because of his redemptive work on the cross, you've now been found justified. Okay? It means that your sin, which is supposed to have uh, sent you on a one-way ticket 
to separation from him has been revoked. You are now found to be justified. And once you are found justified, then God begins to sanctify you. It's a process that begins to work inside your your life where God begins to make you a new creation. Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, Do not conform yourselves to this world. Sounds pretty familiar, right? It's the same thing that I'm talking about this morning. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That transformation that Paul is talking about is sanctification. It's God's continuous work in our life to transform us, to make us something new, to renew us. So what does that have to do with Christ's joy being fulfilled in us? As you work through the process of sanctification, you you begin to shed your sinful past. The weight and the sorrow and the anguish that comes with your former self can now be put to bed. It can be placed behind you. Um, Sometimes, though, we get into a, a position in our life where we start to think that our actions or the things we've done or the life that we live defines who we are as a person. Again, this is something that I struggle with with the students because they go to school one day and they make one bad mistake or one bad choice and all of a sudden they're labeled as a bully or a partier or something even worse. And they go on a six-month-long cycle where they take on that identity because that's what the rumor mill is telling them that they are. Their school and society has said, you are this because you've started to do these things because of this one mistake. And that doesn't go away when we get older, right? We still walk around with this 90-pound sack of past mistakes. But the truth of the gospel tells us that that doesn't matter. You are no longer who you were. But sanctification is not a one-step process. It's a continuous work. It's daily. It's hourly. It is the work of God in our lives. But that doesn't mean that we just sit back and let him do his thing. We have to have the discipline to maintain it. I want to be in great shape, okay? I do. There is a a genuine part of me that wants to like run 30 miles a day and work out a whole lot, but I really love food and I love to sleep, okay? But I'm cursed with um, living a life where I get to see a very real representation of myself if I were to work out. It's my brother, okay? (laughs) People say that we look a lot alike, okay? People say that we act alike. We have a lot of the same mannerisms. Um, Apparently, we know where he gets his good looks. In fact, my students have reminded me that we do look a lot alike, but as one student affectionately put it, I look just like him except I'm a little more fluffy. (laughs) Now, my brother doesn't stay lean and mean because he sits around all day and waits for it to happen. He's got a disciplined, regimented lifestyle that allows for him to not get fluffy. Kevin was freed from fluffiness by becoming a slave to working out. (laughs) Likewise, Paul says that we are freed from our sin because we become slaves of righteousness. Our desire for sin has been replaced by our desire for Christ. And this is played out in two critical motions. One, turning away from sin, and the second is turning towards his word. Some of you guys have been consumers here. Y'all have come in on Sunday mornings, and you have never stepped out into that relationship. That, that moment, that light bulb moment has not happened for you where you have realized the weight and the truth of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. You cannot be sanctified until you've been found justified. 
That redemptive work of God working in your life and shedding that sin for you cannot happen until you get to a point where you realize that that sin has already been paid for because of Christ's death on the cross. The second group of people that are here um, are people that have been coming to church for a long period of time that are believers that have entered into a relationship with Jesus, but at some point in your life, you've started to let sin creep back in, and it started to create this, this chasm where you find that your joy in Jesus has been replaced by the sorrow and anguish of the weight of the sin that you carry around with you on a pretty regular basis. If you're in either of those two camps, then here's my challenge to you guys. It's that you find somebody and you talk to them about that and you work through that. It can be me, it can be Shannon, it can be your life group leader, another believer. If you are going to really stop chasing this elusive state of happiness, then you have to get rid of the sin that you've been chasing after that you think is going to give you the joy and the happiness that you've been looking after. It's critical in order for you to stop chasing that elusive state of happiness. The second part of that is turning towards his word. Okay, turn from your sin, talk to somebody about it, work through it. I think part of sanctification, God provides the body for us to be uh, shaped and sharpened, and so you have to be part of that. But the second part of that is for us to turn to his word. Um, I can't express to you the amount of joy and peace that comes from submerging yourself in God's word on a daily basis. When we talk about that discipline and that daily activity that you need to be doing, reading his word is critical. God doesn't talk to us anymore through burning bushes, okay? Jesus entered into a new era for us where the Holy Spirit and his Holy Scripture is what works in us and communicates through us. But in order for you to realize that the Holy Scripture can do those things, you have to realize what the Holy Scripture actually is. It's God-breathed. It's infallible. It's written by God through man. When you look at it through that, that sense and through that lens, Scripture takes on uh, a different shape than just being a really good book for you to read. You, you'll get halfway through a good book and put it back on the shelf. But when you realize that it's God's uh, avenue and conduit to speak to us, then it takes on a completely different, different look. The difference is you will stop receiving the word and you will start to accept the word. And here's the difference between that. I can buy you a Bible and I can hand it to you and you can take it from me. That means you've received the word of God. You've received it. I can sit at your house and read it to you out loud for 24 hours a day and you can receive the word. But it doesn't mean that you've accepted it. When you accept scripture for what it is and what it can do, then it literally has the ability to define what you believe and how you conduct yourself. It has the ability to motivate change, to encourage, to inspire, and to counsel. It's not only important for your sanctification, but it's critical. It's the first and it's the last word. You can come talk to somebody all day long, but our authority and our knowledge begins and ends with Scripture. And that's good news for you because that means that you don't have to go to a rabbi, a priest, or a pastor in order to receive it. You just have to believe it and accept it. Now, I hope you're not hearing me say, look, um, if you're going through a tough time, then go get a Bible and start reading it, okay? Um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, so I don't want you to think I'm discouraging you from that either. If you are going through a tough time, you need to be turning to Scripture. But what I'm telling you is, is if you continually, every day, turn to Scripture, then what it's going to do is it's going, the truth of that word is going to develop a knowledge in you that's going to go ahead and have that perseverance and that hope dwelling inside of you. So when those bad times hit, when those storms come upon your life, instead of being reactive to them, you already realize that it's God working through you. 
I'm going to leave you guys with one last piece of scripture. If you would turn to Romans 5 for me, I'm going to actually wait for you to do that because I really want you to turn to this piece of scripture. This is one of those that you have to highlight, underline, write notes in the side next to you. Paul's talking to the church at Rome. He begins in verse 1 and he says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Here's my challenge for you guys. As we leave this place, what I hope is that we are not a church that goes out and continues to chase that elusive state of happiness, but that we turn to the eternal joy that can only come from Christ Jesus. That we go out into the world, and when people see us, they don't see us as bitter, angry, unhappy people, but they see us as people that despite the bad times and despite the struggle and despite all of the things that we may be going through, we have a certain level of happiness and joy that becomes hard to ignore. That sweeps throughout this community like wildfire where they start to want to come to this church and hear about this Jesus because they want to know where they can find this same level of happiness. But we have to stop synthesizing we have to stop faking what can only come from a life that's found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, um, your word is truth. Um, sometimes it's not easy for us to hear. Sometimes we want to hear that our life is going to be filled with rainbows and butterflies. But God, we know that that's not the truth. We know that storms will hit. The question is, how do we respond when those storms come? God, we know that there is an eternal peace and an eternal hope and an eternal joy that comes from a life that is consumed by you, not consumed by the world. So God, I pray that as we go out into this week and as we go back into our jobs and as we go back into our families, that we don't set our sights on the things that are going to fade away, but that we set our sights on a God who never fades away. God, we love you. We love you for the sacrifice that you've given to us. We love the fact that in the midst of that sacrifice, you still had so much love for us that you prayed to God earnestly for us to be able to exist in this world so that we can make other people aware of your goodness. We love you. We praise you. And all God's people said, amen.